0: Good morning. What an awesome morning this is. Yesterday it was 39, today it's 70. I went to go outside and Amy's like, you know it's really hot out there. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. The title of the, uh, the, title of the message today is called Shipwrecked. And uh, we are going to look at a section of scripture In Acts 27, one of the most dramatic scenes uh, in the Bible, and it's where Paul goes, uh, uh, he's being carried back to Rome as a prisoner. Um, He had appealed to Caesar a couple of chapters earlier, and so he's going to go stand trial and and be heard. Um, As I was preparing this lesson, um, I was reminded of uh, Horatio and Anna Spafford not sure if you're familiar with I see some head nods over here Shh, don't spoil it for everybody Horatio and Anna pa- uh, Spafford Horatio was a successful lawyer okay and to give you a time frame this is around 1870s okay successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago um, and even coming back after the great Chicago fire of 1971 was very prominent he, the, he and his wife they had five children Um, One of these children, uh, his only son, died at an early age, and they were left with four daughters. Uh, Anna and her four daughters, on November the 21st, 1873, were going to take a trip to Europe. And uh, they boarded the uh, Villa de Harvey. Had 313 passengers on board this ship on their way to Europe. Four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, uh, their ship collided with an Irish ship called the Lock Urn. As a result of this collision, 226 passengers died out at sea. Um, Anna was the only surviving member of her family. And she got uh, picked up by a ship and she was taken uh, to somewhere else and she basically wired back to tell Horatio that she was saved alone and needed to know what to do. You know, there's moments in our life that change our life forever, right? And there's things and there's circumstances that take place within our life that, man, only by the grace of God can we get through this, right? And this story, Paul's story, on his way to Rome is going to be one of these stories that that we're going to be able to cling to. I know it spoke to me this week as I've gotten into it. Um, So I'll tell you what, let's go to God and then we're going to get into his word. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the worship here this morning. And and Father, we just lift you up and we praise you, how great you truly are. As we get into your word here this morning, Father, I pray that uh, that you would make it clear and allow your Holy Spirit to work in our life, to move in our life and allow your word to touch us. Father, I pray that uh, this morning that they wouldn't see me here, that they would only see you. And in Jesus' name, amen. So, Acts chapter 27. The first part of this chapter... Is where, Acts is, is where Paul is going to be taken to Rome, okay? And so if I'm going to give you just a little bit of a synopsis to get to where that we need to be. Okay, so verses, um, well, actually just lead into it, one of the commentators, and I, I didn't know that until this week, but one of the commentators said that this would be Paul's last journey. And in fact, there would be no more journeys for Paul, not as far as the book of Acts is concerned. And he said, in fact, uh, the book is about to be closed on Paul's life. Right? And so this is one of his last, his last trips. So 1 through 3, we see that the journey begins. Okay? Paul is placed as a prisoner under the guard of a centurion. Okay? And I, just want, I don't want to bring out a couple of things here. I, I want you to notice how the believer, because his only crime is that. That's what the Jews got him for. Okay? I want you to see how he was placed with the worthless the violators, the criminals. That's where the believer was, was placed. As believers, we're often put in those categories, especially in an environment where we're the minority. Okay, and as we look at our US in a post-Christian society, do we not see that becoming more and more in the lives around us where everything that is Christian is pushed out to the margins? Note this. The centurion actually allowed Paul as a prisoner to be taken care of by some friends. He let him go to his friends, which is almost unheard of. Because if he loses his prisoner, what happens to the centurion? It's not good. I can tell you that. That's what was going on with uh, when Jesus rose from the grave. That's, how, that's one of the ways you know they weren't lying, right? I mean, because they're going to be put to death by this thing, right? And so the fact that he's allowing Paul to go to his family speaks a lot about. Paul and how he was as, as a prisoner, right? As we go through chapters 4 or verses 4 through 12, okay, I want you to see the greed that's going to take place, that's going to allow this uh, excursion to continue because the weather is getting bad. They know what time of year it is. They know, and they don't need to continue. In fact, Paul, I want you to see this, God's insight through the Apostle Paul, and this is one of those, um, we, we, we think about... Uh, prophesying and a lot of times it's foretelling not foretelling right and so you can prophesy into somebody's life and you can tell them what God's Word and speak to some things like that but here you see God actually reaching in advance it's one of these times where he's, he's going to use the Apostle Paul, and he's going to say some things that's going to, that's going to happen here shortly, right, that had not come to pass yet. And he says, this is Apostle Paul in, in, in verse 10. He says, Man, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. And I want you to notice the worldly response. 11 and 12. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. The harbor was unsuitable to stay in for them guys. It didn't have the creature comforts that they were looking for, right? They wanted to sail on. And also great loss to the cargo. So there's a monetary involvement here. Right? And, and, and they are so focused in on not losing money, that's the ship captain's main priority is the cargo. Right? And then you have the centurions in his group that wanted to stay somewhere a little nicer. All right? So they disregard. And then what happens? I call it the deceptive calm. The deceptive calm. Because that's what in fact this is. It says uh, when, in verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their op- opportunity... So they weighed anchor and sailed along, uh, along the shore of Crete. Okay, so that little nice little wind came in, that warm south wind. They know what time of year it is. This is a bunch of sailors. They're not, they're not ignorant here. They know what it is, and, that, and they felt that, right? And the thing that, that strikes me that I'm reminded of is James chapter 1, verse 13 and 15, 13 through 15, about the temptation of sin. Because this, this speaks to that so clearly in my mind. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desi- evil desire and enticed. Each person is dragged away when they are enticed in their own evil desire. Okay? It says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth. Don't tell me that sin is not fun, right? Look at how many people are just going head over heels for this thing. You can't say it's not fun. In fact, here, we're going to have a baby, right? It's going to be fun. I mean, that's what sin is going to do for us. But it says, when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Death. Do you think these people, if they would have saw... What was coming? If they would have listened to Paul, they'd have still took that journey? Of course not. Would we dive off in sin if we could see the end result of our actions a year from now? Would we, would we get in that conversation with that other woman at work? Would we try that, that drug on the weekend? Would we do that if we could see the end result of what was coming? Would we do that in our own life? Probably not. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it's going to cost you way more than you ever wanted to pay. That's what sin does for you. And if you could just see, if you could take a moment and see the end result of sin, would you start? We're going to get to the storm. This starts in verse 14. Let me get turned open here. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave into it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Calda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it above, aboard. Then we passed ropes under the ship. Itself to hold it together. Their very ship is falling apart. Their ship. Because they were afraid they were run aground on the sandbars of Satyrus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So took such a violent... We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. So all of these things... That we were saying is the reason why we want to go. We're willing to give up that stuff now. Right? The, the storm has gotten to the point where now they're throwing their cargo overboard. I don't need that stuff anymore. Why? Because <laughs> I'm fixing to lose my life in this thing. Right? And so I'm going to throw my cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days the storm continued raging, raging. we finally, listen to this, gave up all hope of being saved. We gave up all hope of being saved. In our life, and in every one of your lives, you're going to have trials. You're going to have these things that come up that are going to test you. Here, we see a very good test, a picture of the trials and the providence of God that's going to weigh through this seemingly just absolutely chaotic environment aboard a ship. We could ask, why didn't God just allow the ship to make it safely, so that Paul could deliver his speech. We could ask those things. Why was the trial made so difficult for the crew and the passengers? We could ask those things. Why did this have to happen in my life? We can ask, right? It's our natural instinct. I want to, I want to bring out some reasons of the trials that's in our life. First trials are used by God to cause men to turn to God for salvation. And I want you to see the turn in the centurion. I want you to see it. We've already heard one side of it, right? Chapter 11 or verse 11, he says, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul had to say, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. That's where we started. Paul saying, listen, this is what's going to happen here. And he doesn't have time for that, right? He's going to listen to those guys. Follow that up with with verse 30 and 32. It says, In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to be lowered, uh, to lower some anchor from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. He's telling them God's way. You can't be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes. That lifeboat could have preserved some life. They cut the ropes and let it go. What happened here? As a result of Paul and this trial, they said, I'm going to start listening to to Paul's God. That's what I'm going to start listening to. This guy knows what he's talking about. Trials prove that a person really trusts God. Trials make a believer stronger so that he can stand against even tougher trials in the future. We're going to create some endurance here. Right? In, in, in our race. Trials can demonstrate the presence and power of God in a person's life to a greater degree. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 and 9. It's Paul. And he's talking to God and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Three times I pleaded. Right? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes we have to have these things. And I can look back in my own life and I can see distinct points in time where God had to, he had to get my attention. And he had to bring me down to a place where I was willing to listen. Luckily for me, he's good at that. The world needs to see the demonstration of God's power and presence. And the only way to see it in the life of the believers is as they go through trials. The world will see how we're going to deal with this. Who are we going to put our faith and our trust in? In Revelation chapter 3, John, ultimately Jesus, is talking to the church at Laodicea. And one of the things in that church, you may recognize it or remember it, he's, he's talking about you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But because you're not, I spit you out of my mouth. A little bit down past that, he tells them in 17 and 18, it says, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched. You're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined in the fire, so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and put salve on your eyes, so that you can see. I want you to buy gold from me, refined in fire. What does the fire do to the gold? It purifies the gold. That's how we get our carrots and things, is they take this gold and they're going to heat it up to about 2,000 degrees in the heat, and they're going to pull all the junk out of it, and they're going to refine it to where it's 100%. That's where you get your 24 karat gold from. But then after that, they add some more things to it but the refining process is where we're going to take and we're going to get a lot of this junk out and I remember um, an analogy that I saw one time and and our pastor he had a he had a vase here he had two that was the same and one of these vases was full of rocks and he poured water in until it filled up and the vase was full right and and the only way to get more water into that vase was to take some of these rocks out And we start going through these refining processes where God is just molding us into the person that he created us to be. Who do we trust in our trials? Do we trust in our own strength? Being in the army, being a police officer. That's easy for me to want to do that, to go trust in myself to get things done. That's easy. But who do I trust when the rubber meets the road. Who do I trust in those moments? Do I try to just take it upon myself and get it done? Or am I going to trust God to lead me through these things? And 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18 says, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed that all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory in glory, amen. See, there's a byproduct of not trusting God, and you see it play out so well right here. And the byproduct is fear, it's anxiety. And if I notice that I'm having an overwhelming amount of fear and anxiety in my life, I need to think about where am I putting my trust? Who am I putting my trust in? Do you see the fear that's taking place here with these sailors, with these men? Literally gave up all hope of being saved. That's fear. That's real fear. I was thinking back in 2003 in April, I found myself at a fire base in Afghanistan. And our first maybe our second night first or second it was really close it was our squad and there was a squad of special forces and civil affairs guys there and they're like that was it and we're in the middle of nowhere and uh, and we started getting shelled and the first one when it came in it hit and it was really really loud and I sat up in my cot and my captain he sat up and we're both confused this was our first attack in country I was 22 years old. I was a sergeant at the time. But, you know, training for something and then being in something, that's two different things, right? And so we both sat up, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and we're right beside the Special Forces guys. And I remember, I remember asking him, like, is, is, are we getting hit? And he's like, I don't know. And so we listened for a minute. And, like, Special Forces guys, they weren't, they weren't doing anything. They weren't shuffling around in the tent. We're like, okay, maybe that's not what we thought that was. And so I laid my head back down in the tent. And then the next one got like really close. And so unden- undeniable, unmistakingly, we're getting attacked. And so I jump up, though the Kevlar on Special Forces, they're doing their thing at this point, right? So nobody's laying in their cots anymore. And so I throw on my Kevlar, my vest, I'm in my boxer shorts and I got my boots on and my gun and I'm running to where I got to get to, right? I mean, that's the scene of chaos is what that is. And so I'm running, and I actually got, I, I got clotheslined in the process. but Where the night vision attaches to the Kevlar, it got hung up on a rope, and it took me off my feet, which wound up being a good thing, because like the place I was going to got blew up. And so I stand up, and like I see this big thing just take place in front of me, and, uh, and I stand up. Well, I still got to go over there. And so I go over there, and I put my back on what's now just a pile of bricks, and I'm sitting there. And I remember this feeling that they're talking about right here, this absolutely hopeless feeling because that's what I had because everything around me was absolutely out of my control. I didn't know where the next one was going to hit. I didn't know what was going to happen and I was absolutely terrified. And so the question is in those moments, when somebody in your life gets really sick, or somebody in your life dies, or your kids go down a road of drug and alcohol abuse, in those moments when all the things around you are out of your control, who do you put your trust in? What are you gonna lean on? Because if you try to lean on yourself, the only thing that's gonna come is fear and anxiety. We fear because it's absolutely out of our control. We fear because we need to trust in God. Trust in His provision. Trust in God's grace. Trust in His love for us and His plan for our life. And maybe in the plan of the life of somebody that we love. In Isaiah 26 and verse 3 it says, You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. This peace that passes all understanding, we don't get that if we're relying on ourselves. We get that if we're looking up. That's where we get the peace that passes all understanding. How do we respond? How do you respond to these things? The gripping power of fear is understandable sometimes. Fear can grip us. The question is, In those moments, what are we going to rely on? Because we desperately need to rely on God's word and his promises. That's what we need in those moments. And when we see this play out with Paul, I love Paul because in his writings, we learn so much from his writings, but we learn so much from just the way that he lived his life. A believer must believe God's words and promises. A believer must trust God's words and His promises and focus everything on God's word and His promises. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised with the Messiah, keep focusing on the things that are above, where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Because we want a perfect love. Because perfect love casts out all fear. Because when we can rely on God's word like that, then we have that security. And when we rely on God's words and his promises like that, then you have what happens here. People will listen to you too. Because they know if you're faking it or not. And you can't give what you don't have. Acts 27, 21 through 26 said after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sell with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we're going to run aground on some island. What's Paul telling them? He said, man, my God's got this. He's got this. You've got to trust that my God has got this. And because Paul believes it, they're going to believe it. Do you see it? The faith? The trust? the love that Paul's got, the obedience that Paul has. See, God has set eternity in the heart of every man. He's put eternity there. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set in the human heart eternity. We have it. Our greatest need Our greatest longing is to be reunited with God, our loving Father. That is the greatest thing that we have. It's our greatest need. We can go out and we can go to the soup kitchen and we can feed the homeless. We can do those things. We have to be eternally minded. What would it profit a man to give him a bowl of soup and he goes to hell? What would it profit a man in the cold if you give him a coat and you don't tell him about Jesus? You deprive him of the gospel and he loses his soul. What would it deprive my wife and kids? To grow up here in the United States, to have a warm house to go home to with running water and multiple changes of clothes for everyday food, multiple times a day, go to bed every night with full bellies, and they knock the bottom out of hell. What would it profit them? I'm not saying we don't do these things. Yes, we do these things, but it's both and. It's not either or. We can't say, well, I'm going to get to the gospel. Man, what if death gets to them first? We have to be like Paul and be in the moment and be willing to share our God and our faith with people in every day, in every moment, in every place that we work in. and Whatever we do, God has given us a sphere of influence. Paul is a prisoner. He's a prisoner in chains under the guard of a centurion and he can tell them about Jesus Christ he can tell them about his God what is our excuse what else do we have the truth is is that the only thing that matters is eternal things in Revelation 20 it's called the great white throne judgment I'm not sure if you're familiar with it I'm gonna read you a piece of it it says then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as was recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone, and this is what's important, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was found and thrown into the lake of fire. The only thing that counts is being counted among the people whose names is in the book of life. That's what we're here for. Our heart wants to do things for other people. We need to do things for other people. What I'm saying, we have to be eternally minded just as Paul is eternally minded right here. Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the only way. Acts 27 Verse 27, on the 14th night, we're still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to them, to the centurions and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope that held the lifeboats and let it drift away. This is a picture of man's way versus God's way. There's a fateful hour in a shipwreck. The gripping power of fear. Man trying to save himself. The way of God for saving men in this story was declared three times before they finally took heed. People have been plotting the way to save themselves since the beginning. We keep trying to do these things our way, but just as we see in this story, there is no other way but God's way. John 3:16 tells us, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, one and only son, that whoever believes in Him shall not be perished, shall not perish, but have eternal life." In John 6 and 68, it says, Simon Peter answered him, said, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life." John 8, verse 23 and 24, it says, But He continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. John 14, And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. Acts 4, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven. Given to mankind for which we are saved. Mm. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11 for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And there's probably 50 other verses that sound just like that. God's way is clear. His way is clear. God's way is the only way to be saved. And isn't that what we just saw? They could have got on that lifeboat. But Paul says, if one of you gets on that lifeboat, nobody here is going to be saved. And the centurion cut what man's view of the only way they were getting off that boat. He cut the ropes. Man, that's powerful. No matter what trials are in your life, because some of you, you may be shipwrecked right now. I don't know what's going on with you. God does. But I want to encourage you this morning with the words of Paul. Keep up your courage because you will not be lost. (laughs) Nothing in this world can separate you from the love of God. Nothing in this world. There's no trial. There's no tribulation. There's nothing that Satan can throw at you that can separate you from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Oh, amen. That is good. I want to read you something from the Library of Congress specifically dealing with Anna Spafford says time proved short the severity of the damage was clear to the observant eye the luxury ship proved ill prepared for mass emergency evacuation struggling passengers let me get it back struggling passengers who tried to ready lifeboats for departure, discovered that most were stuck fast, painted to the side of the deck. While crew members commandeered those that were available and took to sea, the Spafford girls stayed with Anna through the chaos. With Tanetta, that's her baby, in her mother's arms, survivors later reported that Anna Spafford offered a calm voice to the adults hovered around her. As the the vessel began to to tip towards its side into the freezing depths, she calmly pronounced, Don't be afraid. The sea is his, and he has made it. And the ship sank. Anna Spafford was caught with water. Tanetta was ripped from her arms. The three other girls did their best to persevere, but all would eventually die, except for Anna. In recalling the incident, Anna would later say that the shipwreck experienced and her miraculous survival marked an epiphany in her spiritual life. The Spaffords went forward with optimism and determination and they proceeded into new paths in their faiths, confident in their belief that their daughters had seen salvation at the grace of a merciful God. In the aftermath of the shipwreck, Horatio Became beloved for the words of the hymn of consolation and faith. The name of the hymn is It Is Well with My Soul. Bertha Spafford, a daughter that he would later have, said that he wrote the words to that hymn on his way to meet his wife. It's powerful what God can use out of the heart of a believer. And you don't get to have a test without a testimony. But I want to encourage you today that whatever's going on in your life, that you would lean into a loving father who wants to walk with you, who wants to give you the grace that you need to make it through it. He'll meet you right where he's at right where you're at. And I want you to trust in the plans that He has for your life. Let's go to God. Father, thank You for the morning, for Your Word. Thank You for the apostles, their examples, and and just being able to to lean in on on parts of their life and apply those things to ours. Father, we love you. We want to put our faith and our trust in you and in the circumstances in our life, Father, that you've got this and that that you're working in and through all of these things. Father, I just want to encourage everybody here this morning, Father, that they would seek you, that I would seek you, even through the hard things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.